Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Finance Focus Industry Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Saklane Chowdhury, and we are very fortunate today to be joined by James Ferguson. James is currently a partner at his own firm, Macro Strategy, and has a career in finance spanning the best part of three decades. How are you doing, James? Good afternoon. I'm well. How's lockdown been treating you? Well, uh, I work from home, so uh, lockdown, it turns out, is exactly the same for me as uh, non-lockdown is. Well, I mean, I know we have a lot to cover, so we'll begin. Uh, could you give me uh, a background of your experience in finance, just to get a gist for what we're talking about today? Most of my um, career in finance has been, well, certainly the first half of my career was basically being um, what they used to be called a stockbroker. But when the Americans turned up, it got changed to being called equity sales or some variant of that. And the main reason for that was, quite frankly, because I thought if I made some money, I would want to invest it. And the best way to get some investment advice would be from myself. So if, I, if my job was effectively a stockbroker, I'd be able to give myself investment advice and I'd know where to invest my money. That was a theory. And that was unfortunately, like so many theories, sacrificed quite brutally on the, uh, uh, on the altar of, uh, of reality, which is that I moved into Japan because I wanted to go traveling and I liked the idea of, um, as a new grad, um, starting off my training in Tokyo. So because I wanted to do, uh, do the traveling, I, I started covering the Japanese market. And um, your listeners may not know this, but on Christmas Day 1989, the Bank of Japan raised interest rates to try and snuff out um, an, an almost world-conquering um, stock market bubble. And they did such a good job that Japan has been in a bear market ever since Christmas Day, 1989. And that was most of my career, so that was hopeless. <laughs> so after that, did you move back, or what, how did you react to that situation? Well, obviously, at the beginning, I didn't really realise that it was going to last forever. I remember very confidently telling a colleague of mine uh, at the time, around about 1990, that uh, we had no, um, effectively, we had no real risk in starting a new business, um, because... Uh, bear markets usually lasted three to four years max. So if we started a new, if we wasted three to four years um, doing what we were doing, we'd just be doing it during a bear market. And if we went off to start a new business, which we did at Swiss Bank, um, we would be building the business into the recovery from the bear market. Uh, and we'd have a, a lovely sort of uh, double whammy benefit of uh, uh, having set up our own business within a, a major investment bank and um, running the bull market. As I said, that also was sacrificed on the brutal reality of the fact that the Japanese almost uniquely managed to make their bear market last 30 years, which at the time was unheard of. And what was so unique about the situation in Japan that uh, may, has made it last so long? I think not a number of reasons, but the, the, the most important reason is that they failed to... Japan has a, as a society likes to think of itself. I think when I was there... Um, it was over 70% of the population consider themselves middle class. So Japan as a society was born out of the Second World War. And um, that, that society that was born out of the Second World War did sort of see globally competing types of society uh, as it interpreted them. And there was the Western style, maybe you had the British hierarchical style society, you had the um, American sort of um, look after yourself, go-getter style society which the Japanese, being very, very homogenous, didn't really like. And they, they were drawn, I think they were definitely drawn to the, um, the socialist type uh, political models 
of, of you know, Russia and China, but they also were drawn to the fact that capitalism seemed to work better uh, in terms of economic outcomes. So they kind of plumped for something in the middle. They basically went for capitalism, but strictly controlled by the state. Um, they went for um, uh, capitalism without the red in tooth and claw. So they went for the famous jobs for life and things like that, such that uh, industries were, were national champions, employees were, joined straight from university and would expect to work for that company for the rest of their lives and retire from that company. They would devote themselves um, body and soul to that company. And, uh, and many of the Japanese salaryman type features were, were born at that time. So when they had their crisis, their problem really was that um, the sensible decision, what the Americans did after the great financial crisis, for, for example, was to um, clear the system. You've got a bunch of imbalances you've created. You've, you've built up all sorts of um, misallocations of capital because you uh, misallocated credit uh, during your credit bubble. Uh, these are features are all and should all be familiar from what happened uh, before the great financial crisis. Um, and the Japanese had the option to clear that out, to admit that their banks were largely insolvent, to work out what to do about that. They, they didn't nationalize the banks, which would have been one option. Um, for the very sensible reason that then you're going way too far down the, the sort of communist socialist path. But they should have worked much harder to encourage the banks um, to crystallize their losses and, uh, and repair their balance sheets. And they didn't. They, they did much more uh, what I would call maybe the French approach, which is to kind of brush it under the carpet and wait five or ten years and see if the banks can't earn their way out of it and then... Uh, rise on on a recovery that um, you know when things recover. Thing is, things don't can't recover if you're the banks because if you're the banks, you're the mechanism that allows things to recover. So uh, Japan never really recovered, and the banks never really made any money. And the banks had to keep their zombies on the books, and zombies can't pay interest, so they uh, were increasingly charging lower and lower rates of interest to borrowers who were never ever going to pay them back. Um, so they weren't even earning enough money out of that to, to work their way through their non-performing loans. And so a decade on, the authorities realized that the, the, the banks were never going to earn their way out of it. They injected capital into the banking system, and then the banking system collapsed. Because what banks do if they have uh, too many bad loans compared to their capital is, well, basically they freeze up. But if you give them extra capital, then they can start the job of crystallizing the bad loans. Um, but, but crystallizing bad loans means that your loan book contracts. Because if I have 10% of my loan book is, uh, is well, actually, the, the real numbers are usually 25%. 25% of my loan book uh, is non-performing. And I start um, crystallizing those defaults and turning them, putting them through the balance sheet. What happens is I have to recognize um, often about a 40% loss after all recoveries on average for those loans. So as you do that, the stock of loans that you have shrinks. That means your money supply shrinks. This is why the state has to do QE, by the way. This interview could turn into a potted history of finance, over global finance over the last 20 years. Um, and, and, then, uh, and, so the, and then the Japanese were doing QE, but they weren't doing our sort of QE because they've been poorly, uh, in, um, poorly advised by... Um, Keynesian uh, economists, people like Paul Krugman, and they therefore, who didn't really understand money because it's not in their theory, uh, and therefore they never, so the Japanese 
uniquely managed to not fix their banks, um, not get the banks to crystallize their losses, not do QE, uh, and not therefore grow their way out of it. So they've, they've shown us what happens if you do nothing. It is worth bearing in mind, final point on Japan, that um, they, there was a good benefit from this. Well, the, the Japanese crisis was caused by a massive overgearing by the corporate sector. It wasn't housing or anything like that. And because the banks haven't really been a feature um, now for the last 30 years, because they've been busy very, very slowly trying to dig themselves out of their hole, um, Japanese corporates have had to rely on themselves. And the massive improvement in the corporate uh, sector uh, debt uh, ratio over 30 years has been fantastic. So Japan is now on a really good footing. It's just that the world got bored and they all slowly wandered away. And personally, I wandered away after 20 years and regretted not wandering away after two. <laughs> Absolutely. So your, your roles have been quite diverse and you've been at many different firms. You know, what inspired the changes aside from the bear market and what were the common themes you experienced? Well, the first thing I would point out, especially as people going into, into sort of careers, you know, after the great financial crisis, 50% of the household name U.S. banks uh, at the time disappeared. They either um, failed completely, like Lehman's, uh, or were bought uh, for pennies, cents on the dollar, um, like what happened effectively to Merrill Lynch, uh, Wachovia, Washington Mutual, um, Bear Stearns. You know, if we started with a list of all the household names and people could name 20 big U.S. institutions, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac also went under, AIG went under, you know, 50% of them just gone. So I look at my career and I started work with Nomura and then I moved to Robert Fleming, very famous investment bank at the time, now gone. Then I moved to Swiss Bank, which was subsequently merged with UBS, so that's now gone. After Swiss Bank, um, I moved to SG Warburg, which was also absorbed by UBS, so that's now gone. Um, when I came back from my sabbatical, I worked for Dresdner Bank, uh, which was Climate Benson, which was a uh, was a famous British investment bank called Climate Benson, which had already just been taken over by a German bank called Dresdner. So at the time I joined was called uh, Dresdner Climate Benson. But Dresdner Bank itself has also now gone. Um, then I moved on to a securities company called Westhouse Securities, uh, or I mean, actually via a bank called Arbuthnot Bank. Um, but they sold the securities uh, part of their business to Westhouse, who then, after I left, changed, I mean, they've certainly changed their name. I don't know if they've changed their ownership, almost definitely. And I, um, and I come there from a company called Pally, which is an American company, which um, blew up during the, uh, the crisis. So in actual fact, I look at the list of companies I've worked for, and only one of them is left. In all the companies over. So, so the first thing you might want to think about when you're starting your career is it might not just be you as the employee who might move from job to job. Your employer might be equally unreliable, especially in finance. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wouldn't take it too hard if I was you. I mean, the common denominator does seem to be you, James, but I'm sure that's coincidence more than anything. Common denominator does appear to be me, but that is definitely almost entirely coincidence, I think. But I mean, then you've, you've transitioned. I mean, it seems you got fed up of working for people, uh, as many people do eventually, particularly in finance. And you, so you started your own firm rather than retiring, I guess, if that was an option. You, why did you start it? And what were challenges you faced kind of working for yourself or developing your own business compared to going to an established one? 
Well, actually, I, I, I would, um, I will answer that question. But can I backtrack first and answer the question, um, which I don't think I answered before, which is why I only ever appeared to work anywhere for three years before getting bored and moving on? Because it's true, um, and there are two reasons for that. The first reason is that I, I was a frustrated uh, global traveller. I had to work for my year off because I didn't have any money to go traveling. So I got an incredibly boring job, hoping I would be able to save enough that I could, uh, stirring blood, cows, blood samples in, a, in an agricultural facility. That's how boring it was. Um, and, I, and I hoped I would make enough money that I could finally afford to go away for a brief holiday uh, in the summer. But um, it was very brief. Um, so I went to university with a very frustrated travel book. Um, and so every time I was getting a bit bored of the firm, I think if I leave now, they'll give me three months gardening leave and I'll be able to add a little bit more to my travel plug uh, and do a little bit more traveling. And I'm also not terribly good at, at being bossed around. So I, I always had issues with, uh, with authority, uh, I think, at, at my investment banks. And that, that sometimes that works very well. If you're an iconoclast and you don't like authority, that can make you, particularly for doing sales, think more laterally, act more laterally, make maybe better contacts with some of your clients, etc. But it does make you very hard to manage. I will, I will admit, I was always very hard to manage. Um, this guy came from HR, called me and then my colleague up and said um, that we were supposed to have, I think we we're supposed to have 25 days holiday a year. And my colleague had taken 37 and I had taken 32. And he, did, and he asked us if we had any suggestions or any comment to make about this. So we, um, we both basically suggested that they should increase our holiday entirely and more accurately fit our lifestyle. And obviously that's not what he meant. It was a rhetorical question and he meant you're very naughty. But I wasn't very good at not being, you know, if I suddenly thought the holiday came up and I needed one and I fancied the sound of it, I, I was, had a tendency to take it. So I usually used to leave places I can see now looking back after about two to three years. Um, and eventually, I actually took a really big break of two and a half years um, coming back from Tokyo. So first, I went to go work abroad in Tokyo. That helped quite a lot with the travel bug. And then I took two years um, <clears throat> after Tokyo before I came back to London, just traveling all over, uh, skiing, scuba diving, uh, and general backpacking um, over all the bits of the world I'd, I'd yet to see. And uh, that got it out of my system, finally. So that's why I kept moving around. It wasn't just because the firms I was working for kept folding. It was also because I was, uh, was a difficult person to uh, hold down. But was there, I mean, in all that time you travelled, what was your reason to then come back to work? Well, particularly in the sabbatical, I, did, I was thinking I would you know, also think long and hard about what else I might do. But I found that while I was travelling around, you know, I'd arrive at a, sort of, at a hotel that seemed to be in a good location and um, a bit tired looking and... Um, it didn't seem to have any any people staying at it. You think to yourself, well, I wonder what the you know, I wonder what the, the financials are of a hotel, and then you sort of go and find out what the room rate was and when they were busy and what the occupancy rate. And I realised that actually all I was ever doing was was you know recreating the financial stuff I was doing. So my problem then became resolved into a new problem that I liked what I did. I just didn't like where I was doing it. You know, starting early in a horrible commute and it's stuffed into a to a tube. So then I started cycling to work, so that'd be much nicer. But then you just arrive all hot. You still have to go into an office. The worst things in the office are meetings and bosses. Personally, I can't bear meetings. They're a total waste of time and interrupt your day. 
Um, I pretty I didn't really like an office because if I was actually working on something, the guys opposite talking about last night's football would I would find very uh, intrusive and, and difficult for my concentration. And um, and so in the end, I, I think I realised that I I kind of really enjoyed finance and I really enjoyed the work and I didn't really enjoy doing it with other people. So um, eventually it, it sort of dawned on me that maybe I should be doing it for myself. So that's so that's a long lead up to the old question before, which is why decide to end up doing it not for an investment bank, um, but for yourself. And in, in the middle, by the way, I'd left out one bit. I tried just on the eve of the crisis to, um, uh, to set up a hedge fund because I thought of a way of computerizing uh, a search function for undervalued companies. Uh, and I thought if a computer could do that, it would throw up many more ideas. Then I just analyzed only the extreme buys and sells, longs and shorts. Uh, that should work really well. But that valuation process, computerized valuation process, absolutely relied, um, uh, you needed a risk-free rate. And the risk-free rate had to come from bond yields. But the trouble with getting a risk-free rate from bond yields is that if you have a financial crisis, it flips. Normally, a low bond yield is a bullish sign. It means that we've basically got, we can, we can, we don't even have to re-rate equities, but equities should naturally re-rate if you lower the bond yield. Um, but in a, in a banking crisis scenario, what it reflects is that the banks are moving to um, uh, low-risk assets. Instead of lending to the private sector, they're lending to the public sector, which they do by buying bonds. And as the bond yields go down, um, if that's reflecting a, a risk reduction, then that's actually telling you you're going to have a worse future outcome, not a better future outcome. So suddenly the benefit or the message you're getting from lower bond yields is flipped from good value to bad value. Um, and so I knew I couldn't use my, my hedge fund idea on Japan because Japan was stuck in this interminable um, crisis. But as I looked at the rest of the world, if I was going to base my model on, on America or, or Europe, uh, but particularly America, I realized that America was about to do the same thing. I only realized this because I'd done Japan. All the people I knew who'd done Japan, we all saw the great financial crisis coming. No one who hadn't done Japan, to my knowledge, saw the great financial crisis coming. And everyone who'd done Japan did. So it wasn't us being clever. It's just that we've done Japan. It was like, as I used to say to clients, it's just, I've just like I've seen the play before. Um, and, you know, as a consequence, I know what happens next. Um, but the one I knew, therefore, that I couldn't set up my hedge fund, I went around telling everybody I couldn't set up my hedge fund. And they'd say, why? And I'd say, because there's about to be a huge financial crisis. And they'd say, that's a different story. Why? And then I'd explain why there's going to be a huge financial crisis. And then they would go, you've got to come and tell my boss. So I'm not kidding. I once went to New York with uh, a small firm called Pally that no one here had ever heard of and hardly anyone in New York had ever heard of. Uh, and I had a meeting um, with a guy which was clearly a misbooking. Uh, only had, the sales team only arranged two meetings for me in New York. Um, one by mistake happened to be with the second, number two uh, at Moore Capital, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. Um, and the second one happened to be uh, with a guy who um, thought, I think he thought we, that we were there from a, a decoration company. I think he thought we would do some um, fixing the office up. And therefore, we'd the meeting and start for 20 minutes. Finally, this guy came in and said, look, I've only got 10 minutes. Just tell me what you were going to say. And, and it was just obviously just being polite. So I gave him the short version I was going to say. I used to do Japan. This is what happened in Japan. When you recapitalize the banks, actually, that's when the trouble starts. It's not the solution. It's the beginning of the banks going, now I can at least afford to start repairing my balance sheet. And he said, 
oh my God, stay here a second. I've got to arrange a quick 10 minutes with someone else. And the someone else was George Soros. So I went straight in um, as I've been a strategist at this stage for about a year, if not less. And I went straight in to see George Soros and told him what was going to happen. <laughs> so this, you know, one bit of advice I give you is like, you know, in, a, in an alter, in another life, live, live the thing which is about to happen in the main market. Uh, and then you can go and tell people what's going to happen. Absolutely. Or read, which is the, that's how you do that. You read comprehensively and then you can, as long as you take, as long as the author and so was going and you take the right messages out of it, you can have lived past crises and past experiences and work out what the solution is and what will happen. Yeah, it seems in finance that experience is so key. It's fluid and theories which were prevalent in certain times no longer apply now and the world moves on. But um, certainly during my internship, I've spoken to a lot of senior people and, um, you know, the gut instinct they have is so, so valuable. And just listening to what they've been through is incredibly valuable. So if you were to, well, I'd say a couple of things, actually. If you're going to hire someone now, uh, you run your own company. A lot of, uh, there's been a transition where non-finance degrees kind of move into finance now as well. It's quite popular. The services sector in the UK is, is a big source of hiring. Um, what do you look for in someone you hire? Well, the first thing I'll say is when I started, um, there were no finance degrees. So everyone who went into finance came from a non-finance degree background. Uh, you know, we had history majors, we had science majors, less science majors, funnily enough, than you'd think. But a lot of, um, you know, a lot of humanities, uh, arts, classics, uh, that was, those were sort of standard um, um, degrees. And then they increasingly, the universities started thinking that maybe they should offer degrees in things like finance uh, or financial economics um, that, that sort of you know, um, catered for what the city wanted. What they didn't really understand is that no one in the city ever uses academics or academic research or any of their ideas, virtually. Um, and the reason why they don't is that academics theories are never subject to the rigorous and brutal empirical testing of real life that people in finance have to face. There's absolutely no point standing there as your position surges, crashes, saying, but in theory, this should be going up. You know, the world doesn't care about your theory. So academics tend to, to head off to the dreamy spires where they can spend 20 or 30 or 40, spend, I would have to say waste, um, 20 or 30 or 40 years um, with a pet theory that, that, you know, will one day be, you know, completely replaced by something else, but they're happy to believe that it works. I mean, I'll give you a really good example right now, which is, you know, plagues the, the world today, is that if you do economics at university, you will almost entirely be taught neo-Keynesian economics. You'll be taught the ISLM uh, circular flow model. This model doesn't even have money in it. Not any money, let alone in the financial markets. It doesn't have any pensions in it, no houses, no stocks, no bonds, no money, no banks. It, it, you know, this model is a made-up child's toy version of our world. And this is why none of the people who were brought up on this model saw, for example, the financial crisis coming, nor did they know what to do to solve it. Um, ben Bernanke, the chairman of the uh, Fed, US Fed, famously, the guy who decided to do QE, famously said about QE, because he was a Keynesian, that QE doesn't work in theory, but, <laughs> funny one, 
seem to work in practice. But that's not funny at all. A, if it didn't work in theory, why did he even decide to deploy it? Short answer is he was trying to manipulate the housing market. <clears throat> but secondly, if his theory was disproved by the fact that QE worked, then why hasn't he had the honesty to turn around and say, I used to be a Keynesian and I now realize I should have been a monetarist? Because he hasn't said that. Because he's not honest. That's the problem. Whereas Mervyn King, who was the head of the, um, the Bank of England at the time, the governor of the Bank of England, he was a monetarist. So he explicitly said, I'm doing QE because it increases money supply. And it stops us having a contraction of money supply, which all your listeners who did economics will know that a nominal contraction of broad money supply is the definition of deflation. <clears throat> Therefore, it stops deflation. But the Fed argues that they did it in order to push up the price of bonds, which should push the yield down. But that's the deflationary impact. So is, is QE inflationary to counter a deflationary threat? Or is it deflationary? In a, in a, in a, anyway, you can quite clearly see it pushed in, uh, yields up, but everyone, everyone in the academic sphere still argues and writes papers about how it pushed it down. Because they, I think they're fundamentally dishonest, actually. If they see a threat to their theory, they will ignore the evidence. And that is, unfortunately, untenable in the real world. So when you're in working in finance, you have to follow the evidence. You have the result. Nothing matters except the result. So the theory is out of the window. So, so when I'm looking at someone to hire, do I care whether they are got a first in in in, in neo Keynesian economics? No, I'm I'm almost worried about that. You know, they might be more likely to dig their heels in and and, and lecture me that I'm wrong. And it wasn't even Keynes. Keynes would not be a neo Keynesian. That's the weird thing. Keynes himself was actually um, fully aware of the importance of money supply. But um, so what are you looking for in a, in a student? So that, I tell you, we're looking for the opposite of what we fear most. What we fear most from students are two things. One, entitlement. I went to university. I worked really hard for three years. I've got a degree. You know, I'm pretty much done. I might put my feet up. Now, you know, university may seem hard when you're doing it, but it's not remotely hard compared to work. Firstly, you get half the year off. Secondly, you know, you, you spend most of your time partying and then just dash off an essay at the last second. And if you learn how to do one properly, you'll probably do it with very little work and, and get a reasonable mark. You know, when you're actually working, when I started work, I spent certainly for the first five years or so of my career, I'd work an 11 hour day. And I was paid. Now I know we've got an inflation issue here. So you have trouble turning it into real money. But when I started work, I was paid 9,000 pounds a year. Now, working for an investment bank, working an 11-hour day, I can tell you I bought a flat after two years and I um, basically had to uh, threaten to resign on, in year three because I couldn't afford to pay the mortgage because interest rates had gone up and I just was not paid enough money to, to live. So investment banking was very much a kind of work hard and one day you might get the dream. It was not the sort of going straight into comfortable uh, you know, salary straight out of university world. So the first thing we need to worry about is with, with new hires is are they going to be entitled? Are they going to, you know, think they know more than us? They're going to lecture us because we actually have to deconstruct you. We actually have to say, look, university is where you learn how to think and you get to prove to us whether you can stick it, whether you can do problem solving, the problem being getting through to finals, whether you can, um, you know, um, be given a big task, i.e. pass all of your exams, 
and, uh, and not sort of fall at the wayside. But the stuff you learn is taught to you by academics. And the stuff they teach, we would disagree with absolutely every word almost that comes out of their mouth. Their interpretations are wrong. They're, they're, they, they refuse to, to subject themselves to empiricism. When they do test themselves, they make sure they, they, they corrupt, they corrupt the, the test to make sure that the test is tautologically built around the assumptions they have in their, in their model so that it sort of proves, in inverted commas, um, that they were right all along. But this is not, this is not what happens in, in the real world. And none of them, if you ask them about their theories um, applying to the real world, or the honest ones at least, will say it's got anything to do with the real world. It's just, this is the academic exercise that academics do of inventing a model and then showing that it's internally consistent. Not that it could be in any way reflect the more complex thing of reality. So firstly, we don't want you coming to us thinking you know it all. We'd rather you came to us and said, I do understand, I know nothing, but I'm ready, I'm ready to learn. The second thing is um, that we're very worried that your work ethic will be found wanting. That you could do a really good 11 hour day but turn up late on Tuesday because you'd already done one whole day of work and that was quite enough for this week. Now, I, you know, and, I, and this is no, this is no uh, criticism, as it were, of your generation. My generation is exactly the same. If you've had a life where you had six months off every year for holidays, um, you know, you're, and you were never asked to work, you know, usually much when you're at school beyond, say, three in the afternoon, and then you go to university and you can pick your own hours. But again, you were never really expected, except in the panicky revision of finals, to work terribly long hours, not on consistent days. So we understand that you're not ready to, to put in the hours, but um, we're worried that, you know, you won't be able to, or that your performance will suffer dramatically. If we do make you work the hours, you'll spend the whole day, you know, nodding off in the corner or not paying attention or... Um, you know, unable to sort of stay awake because you're not committed because you're probably going out for a drink afterwards, and that's the problem. Is that you know, uh, the work-life balance needs to be rebalanced um, into uh, into what work wants, which is you have to hold it up until Friday night, and then you can go nuts because you've got the whole weekend to recover. But you know, my, you know, sun, Sunday night through to uh, Thursday night, we need you to be early to bed. You know, getting with the program. So. Um, so that's really what I would say is I think students' natural inclination is to think that they come out of university as the finished article. And R, as the hirer's natural inclination, is to, is to be looking for really good quality putty to mould. So if you show me that you're able to um, deal with the first obstacles that come along. I once had five graduates given to me um, for a week. Um, and I said, I don't really want any graduates. I, I'm busy on a project. And they said, well, find something for the do because no one else wants them either. So I had, I found a project, which is, you need to look this thing up. That's one of the things I have to do next. I need to find this data. You could try starting here, but I don't know if it'll be there. And then you'd have to sort of, there's five of you, use your initiative. You've got the internet, you know, come and tell me all the different ways you've tried and, and come and let me know if you hit any, you know, partial successes or any hurdles. But, um, you know, that's your project. Anyway, I didn't hear from them for a... And I said, you don't even have to do it here. You can go to the library. You can go anywhere you want. Um, I didn't hear from them for the first day. And on the second day, I found them at mid-morning, uh, sort of near coffee break. Obviously, they thought it was coffee break. Sitting in the, uh, in the conference room, 
One of them, I remember, had his feet up on the desk. One of them was sitting on the on the table in the conference room, and the other other two were sort of chatting away. And I came in and I said, "Oh, great! So you must have finished the job." And they said, "No." And I said, "Well, you seem to be having a very relaxed break. If you haven't finished it, how far have you got?" And they said, "Oh, it wasn't. The information wasn't where you told us it would be." And I said, no, "I didn't tell you it would be there. I said that's the first place you should look." And they said, and I said, "Okay, so so what did you do next?" And they said, "Oh, nothing." Then what you didn't tell us anything next. And I said. Yeah, I told you to find the problem, the solution to the problem. And they hadn't actually done a, a thing after that. I, I guess because at university you're given a reading list or you're given a, you know, it might be a, a pain to have to do the work you're given, but you're given it on a plate. And in the real world, you're not. You're given a problem that you have to solve. You might have to be like a mathematician who has to, you know, when, uh, when you got the fields model, uh, Andrew Wiles, who solved the Fermat, that last theorem problem in maths, had to teach himself a whole new section of maths because he realized as he's working through the, 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 the Fermat last theorem problem that his the maths he knew wasn't going to get him there and he'd have to learn this new thing and that's what I'm talking about you need to show that you know the problem is there to be solved and it might take a little bit more than just being handed the answer on a plate not one of those five made it through probation well understandably so and uh, there's increasing competition in finance so you hope that the graduates now perhaps have a better perception of what's expected of them and hopefully we can give them some inclination as to what uh, people like yourself James expect from them but um, in terms of how you've seen the financial sector progress over your years within it what, what comments would you have to make on that? The best advice I can give um, I think my, the first bit of advice I give is if you hear anything interesting, and in finance you will hear a lot of interesting things. So there you are, day one, someone's talking where they say something and you should have your antenna open for, this is interesting. You know, Did you know that Gazprom is currently down 82% in dollar terms, even though um, over that same period, its uh, profits have gone up and its revenues are, are about the same. And you go like, ooh, you know, so why has it gone down? That sounds really interesting. Um, so you go and check. Has it fallen 82%? Are its sales unchanged? Are its profits up? And guess what? You'll discover, mm, not really. Well, not quite. Now, so therefore, if you were writing a sticker for your wall, my, my number one sticker would be always check. It's amazing how many people in finance after operating in a fast-changing environment. Uh, there are a lot of um, um, themes that get picked up in finance that people never quite got round to checking. They think they don't have time to, on their hands to check. But, you know, always check, because you will find that 50% of the things you are told are not true. And, you're, and as you understand which ones are true and what the truth is about the other ones, you'll start to put together um, a picture. Um, increasingly, people in finance are being paid less than they used to be. Not the very best ones, but, but people in general. Uh, you know, the, 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 the troops, the lower ranks in finance are being paid less or they're being replaced altogether by um, AI. My son's about to have an interview um, that's not only being designed by AI, but it's then going to be carried out by AI, which has the fingerprints of HR, a fairly despicable bunch in my experience, all over it. Um, you know, too lazy to do it properly, unable to do it properly, they hand it over to the machine and then they can, they can lay claim to it uh, 
being beyond their ability to understand, but it can't, must be right because the computer did it. So how do we as humans make sure that we are irreplaceable? Well, firstly, what, what can AI by definition not do? By definition, AI cannot explain to a human why it did what it did or why it chose what it chose. It is kind of the whole point about AI that you let the computer um, come up with solutions that we wouldn't have come up with by pre-programming. The problem with it, the, with it is that there's no way we can query the result. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, since AI is there to service humans, you know, for, from a finance point of view, if I'm an investor and my funds are managed by an AI uh, investment management company, and then I start saying, well, hold on, I'm, I'm not liking what you're doing here, uh, or at least I want to know how you're doing it or why you're doing it or what risks you're taking, someone somewhere still needs to explain. And that means someone somewhere needs to understand. So uh, my advice to everyone would be, having done the always check, start trying to get a really proper, comprehensive, holistic understanding of how the system works. Not the, not the rubbish you were told by the academics at university, but try and work out how banks work. What does a bank look like? from a sort of properly theoretical point of view. Then you can understand what banks are trying to do when they do things. You can't, it's, you know, there are many people who've gone into finance who will do something for a bank, like for example, trade floating rate notes, without ever throughout their whole career having any understanding as to why a bank, let alone the one they work for, would want to have someone trading floating rate notes. What are floating rate notes to the bank? Are they an asset? Are they a liability? You know, there are people who don't understand things about money supply because they model up assets and liabilities. M1, M2, and M3 are all based on bank um, liabilities, bank deposit liabilities. But the monetary base is based on bank assets. Many, many people who are economists and are not accountants do not understand that and, and, and talk about these assets and liabilities as if they are um, the same thing. So. You know, I, I, would, I would also really encourage people to really, you know, try and do the really heavy thinking after you've left university. Once, you, once you're actually working in finance, you'll be given lots of tasks to do all day, which take you all day, and it'll be a long day and you want to go home. But, but when you're sort of, you know, in your off hours reading, whatever, try and think about how, think about how the system must be working. Try and learn about how the system must be working. Ask the people who should know, like the bank sector analysts, how banks work. Ask the, the guys who are the strategists about how money supply works. And then try and work out how banks and money supply work together. And how, in the great financial crisis, what it was that went wrong, went wrong. Because it isn't the things you're told, I can tell you that for sure. But it would take me two hours to fill in the gaps. Maybe a lot of money, because I do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so if, if there are uh, our listeners out there and they're looking to build up um, a knowledge base, shall we say, um, where, what are the resources you think, aside from people, that they can use to get um, empirical evidence for how the financial markets move and work historically? Is it reading? Are there books you'd recommend? Well, yeah, reading, reading is good. The trouble with books is that they're, they're like... Um, they're like frogs. You have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince. 
And the problem with books on finance is that a lot of them have been written by people who don't know anything. So one of the problems is, you know, a lot of journalists write books on finance and, and you know, they're riddled with error. And, and the more, more important being riddled with errors, they don't really understand the big picture. So the, there are some books um, which I would recommend, but they're few and far between. And, and often you have to, you know, one book which is really good, for example, is The Misbehavior of Markets by Benoit Mandelbrot. Now, Benoit Mandelbrot isn't a banker. He isn't an investment manager. He isn't a financier. He was a scientist who was working on chaos theory. And his theory was um, fundamental to whether markets uh, are outcomes are normally distributed or not. And his research, um, uh, his uh, graduate assistant was Eugene Farmer of, if anyone did economics, French and Farmer thing. And Eugene Farmer worked for the guy who invented fractals, or at least uh, introduced the world to fractals, who, who absolutely made a point of saying that there's no point having a risk model of financial markets that assumes that market outcomes are normally distributed, because I can show you that they absolutely are not ever anywhere. To this day, do you want to, to guess how many banks risk models are predicated on the assumption that uh, outcomes are normally distributed? All of them. Yeah. Almost without exception. There will be some Garch models out there. There will be some other things. But value at risk, which some of your listeners may have heard of, value at risk models, which are used by most banks still to this day, um, are still based on normal distribution outcomes, which leads financiers to make really stupid comments. For example, um, Mark Vinier, who was the Goldman Sachs CFO, talked about, I can't remember exactly which um, market decline he was talking about, but he talked about it being something ridiculous like, shall we say, a, I can't remember how many standard deviation event it was, he, he, he said it was. I, I want to say 25, but 25 is so ridiculous that that's, if it was a 25 standard deviation event, it wouldn't have happened uh, yet this time. You know, if we'd had financial markets at the beginning of time, you know, these are just stupid, stupid comments because what they should say is either this was an incredibly um, rare event if market outcomes are normally distributed or simply market outcomes aren't normally distributed and every single risk model that's based on that assumption is worthless or at least it's worthless when it comes to the to the to the kurtosis to the to the fat tails so this is what finance is really all about for me it's that long slow learning curve where people who seem to be clever tell you things but almost absolutely every single thing they've told you has got a missing section which is much more important much more fundamental, sometimes even much more simple, which is nice. And you've got to have the inquiring mind that keeps going, yeah, but what if? Don't let that inquiring mind ask the guy in question because he'll just get pissed off at you for wasting his time. But that's where you should do after it. After someone's told you something, you should go off and say, is that really true? And what if it isn't? And where's the missing section? And how, and how come my view of the markets and the economy and banking so far seem like when you I tell you I give you an analogy because everything in the end should, should fit together so my analogy on all these things is you move to a new city if any of your listeners haven't been brought up in London you move to London for work after university and you get to know the, the, the tube uh, the your local tube and you get to know the tube station where your work is 
and you know those two places and you know what it's, what it's like around those two places. And then you're going to meet some people for drinks and that's at a third tube station. So now you know three tube stations and the bits around them, but you've no idea how they fit into the city to each other. You, you couldn't walk from one to the other. And then someone has a party somewhere and that, that's another tube station. And, and eventually you probably know six or seven or eight tube stations you've been to now for shopping, for going out, for where your girlfriend lives, for work, for home, and they still don't fit together. And then you start walking between a couple of tube stations because you think you're not getting enough exercise. So just the ones that are close to each other. And one day you notice that there's something that you noticed from one of the earlier two. And slowly you start, to, you start to piece together what the on the ground map looks like. And you tie it in with all the tube stations you knew. And then you start to actually go, actually, I'm starting to know this city. I, I could actually, if you tell me right now to walk somewhere, I'd know where it was and I'd know how to walk there the quickest way even though when I first arrived, it was all a complete mystery. Now that's what you have to feel about finance. You have to feel, I'm gonna start, and they're gonna tell me little, little silos of information. But the goal is to end up understanding how all of it fits together. And when you do, then you can understand which bits are vulnerable and why. Then you can understand which bits um, are misbehaving if they're doing something and why. Never take anyone else's word for it. You need to make sure you understand it for yourself. And then you have two things. One, you are valuable to clients because you can explain to them what's going on. And more importantly, where if there's a mismatch between what's going on and prices in something, which gives them the investment opportunity. And you're valuable to your employer because you're the guy around here who actually knows what the hell's going on when things start going wrong. Um, and so I think information is key. You know, AI might have information, but its inability to tell us what that information is or where it comes from is its Achilles heel. So there will never, machines will never be able to replace the guys and girls who understand, you know, how it all fits together and how the machine should work when it's running smoothly and what's likely to be wrong when there's a knocking sound under the bonnet. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting kind of comment you make there with regards to AI. Um, but there are certainly some roles. I mean, I've spoken to a few guys in trading and that kind of thing where automation is increasingly coming in and it's it's not what it once was. You know, that kind of Gordon Gecko type um, scenario is disappearing swiftly. But it seems to be that if you can communicate and well and, and asset management, which is what I've been doing, is particularly client-facing in some areas or wealth management, you know, there's there is a certain comfort people take in um, being expressed ideas to by another person you know there's a frustration you have when you call up HMRC or something and you have to go through all that kind of automation nonsense and you have to say yes and no a million times there is an efficiency in human communication that I think you are absolutely right um, will not be replaced anytime soon certainly so to make yourself invaluable listeners um, get good at talking to people I think um, any parting words from you, James? We've spoken quite a lot, but anything you really want the listeners to kind of stick with, bearing in mind they're quite young, quite impressionable, and it is a weekend. Um, the main thing I'd say is um, try and work out what it is you want. You know, I wanted to go traveling and I had no money. So partly I, I went into finance, partly because I wanted the money to go traveling and it was finance was good because... Um, if I made more money than I needed to go traveling, I would also know where to invest it. And I did end up doing two and a half years traveling in the middle of my career. I did uh, travel to, to um, many parts of the world, got married in New Zealand, 
traveled to weird Pacific islands like Easter Island uh, and Boracay and uh, Bora Bora um, and uh, learned how to become a, a ski instructor in Canada and a dive master in, in Honduras. And, you know, for me, that's living the dream. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to, to make sure that there was nowhere in the world left that I really wanted to go to and, and no sort of thing that I, I wanted to be good at that I was still rubbish at because I'd spent too much time at my desk. Because a friend of mine always says, no one lies on their deathbed and wishes they spent more time in the office. So I would definitely say, think about what you really, really want. You know, finance it will, will eat you up. There's a lot of hard work, a lot of frustrating hours and, and some unforgiving bosses. So think about what you want out of finance. You know, if you want to be in finance because you think that having a JP Morgan business card will get you um, in the, the attention of the girls you're after, then that's probably the wrong reasons. You know, it's got to be because you, it, it satisfies one of the things you really want. And, and a lot of people in my career, um, you know, nowadays I, I'm still working in the industry. Uh, of my graduate intake, which was about 20, 25 strong, I think it was, although some of them were from foreign offices. Uh, so from the UK offices, there were maybe 20 people. I can think of two, three off the top of my head, apart from myself, who are still in the industry. So um, having said that, three of them have also retired with, with embarrassing amounts of, uh, of money. So, you know, but that, that's how it'll be. You know, if there's, if there's 26 of you also in the graduate intake, three will retire uh, with loads of money. Um, one of the guys in the year um, above me um, committed suicide because he lost his job in his 50s, which is notoriously difficult to get back. He had a wife who wanted nothing to do with him because he wasn't producing enough. And uh, his kids were teenagers and didn't want to speak to him. So, you know, there's, a, there's the whole range of life's outcomes face you from uh, retirement wealthy to, to, I know one of, the, one of my intake uh, is still doing a bond sales job. Um, for £50,000 a year and has never had a bonus bigger than 10% of their salary. So just remember that all possible outcomes are waiting for you. So you better be doing it for the right reasons and be, you better be able to be better than absolutely everybody. If you can't walk Goldman Sachs' ass, then don't bother trying. Because I think increasingly that's what's, what's going to happen. Jobs will be replaced for the troops. But you can't replace the guys who, who, you know, are the recognized top, top players. So work out how you become a top player. Um, and, and my advice is to go to the knowledge route. That's, that's certainly what interests me the most. But bear in mind that, that this industry can also chew you up and spit you out. So make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and then give it 100%. Thank you, James. That, I mean, the whole session has been spectacular, really, in terms of the advice given. But... That is something that, guys, I would really listen to and try to take away. You know, try and be excellent, even amongst excellent people, perhaps. Um, but thank you very much, James. I hope that wasn't too much of a chore for you. Hey, we're talking about my favourite subject, me. There's no chore at all. <laughs>